Welcome to our new podcast, Discovering Community Psychology, a podcast hoping to make community psychology ideas and practice more accessible. Throughout our first mini-series, we'll be speaking with numerous psychology professionals about their work, highlighting and celebrating variety and the impact of their positive practice, influenced by community psychology ideas and values. So hi everyone, welcome back to um, Discovering Community Psychology. Um, This is the last episode of our mini-series, so a really special one and we're very lucky to be joined today by Jan Bostock. Um, My name is Molly Beardsmore, I'm an assistant psychologist currently working across Coventry and Warwickshire. Um, Joining me today for the podcast is... Hi, my name's Jane Lomax. I'm a trainee clinical psychologist and I'm on training with the University of Bath and working across that Bristol and Bath and Southwest region. Thanks, Jane. Um, as I said, we're joined here today with Jan Bostock. Jan's a clinical and community psychologist. Um, so welcome, Jan. Thank you so much for joining us on such a special recording, our last episode of our mini-series. Um, I just wondered whether you could start by giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your work within community psychology. Hi everybody. Um, Well I've worked as, I've trained and worked as a clinical psychologist um, and have, I guess my clinical psychology practice has been very informed by community psychology ideas and certainly I was really lucky when I started my job in, when I finished training in 1989 and it was a, some um, new posts were um, devised, which were patch based in Nottingham. And I was really lucky to have one of those, which was working in primary care in a kind of individual adult psychotherapy role. But then we had a day a week where we were to do preventative work and community psychology. And there were a few of us um, around at that time, Steve Mellowish and Diabo Fatimalehin was working with young people and children. And the idea was that we would try and see if we could work in some innovative ways. Prior to that, um, I'd been on, you know, very keen to get to do clinical psychology training after my undergraduate course. And I worked for the World Health Organization on a, a project about researching outcomes in schizophrenia, which is very psychiatric. Um, And it really did cement my concerns about psychiatry being very reifying, very objectifying of people's experiences. And I just really wanted to try and bring some life into, um, you know, people's understanding. And I had a vision and an idea that psychology could do that. Also, the whole sort of World Health Organization work, although um, social Um, indices were collected and it was a very comprehensive data set there was no real understanding of how inequalities or how people's circumstances affected them so it it felt very contentless really Um, and around that time I was really taken with I, I, I guess you've come across George Brown and Tyrrell Harris but they were writing really kind of innovative and interesting things about depression and that really caught my fancy so getting this job in um in Nottingham was fantastic Um, and also there were a few of us doing it so it was quite a privileged time really. We were led by um, David Smale and working in his department then and I can 
tell you a little bit about some of those early projects, if that feels like the right time now. So we, we just were told to kind of get on with it and to work it out as we went along. So one of the first things I did was to be part of a community forum, which um, was really a, a number of agencies and local people, individuals, councillors and different kind of organisations who got together once a month in order to improve the area. So that was a good way of kind of getting a bit of mapping and, you know, just understanding. I lived next door to that neighbourhood anyway, but it was a great way to kind of get to know it. And out of that came um, a kind of drop in um, a, a community centre based group, really, of for women that um, I um, facilitated, which ran for nine months. And out of that came some community research into local GP practices, what people liked, what people didn't. People have very strong and very well-founded views on, you know, which GP practices worked best. Um, so it became a bit of an action research project. And many of the women involved in the PALS group also got involved in the research. So it was, it was small scale, but really felt like we were making a difference and we were part of something and not quite so remote and in a therapy room all the time. The other thing that was part of that was that there was a really um, go ahead GP and um, in Stenton Health Centre. And he just got not a lot of funding, but enough funding for us to have a welfare rights and community counselling service. So I um, kind of oversaw some of that. And um, the, the model was, this is long, long before I act, but this was a community counselling model whereby people had short term advice and signposting to other things with a kind of humane, um, sensitive and kind um, advisors who both advised. Well, was one part was about community counselling and the other part was about um, welfare rights. So that was it was really um, I mean, it all sounds terribly tidy. It wasn't. It kind of was faltering at times but um, it did feel like it created a bit of um, momentum so that things were happening um, and the other thing that happened around that time was that there was a real concern about the maternal health of Asian women and so we did I did some work with an Asian link worker and a health visitor and um, we then rolled that out as a bigger public health project looking at um, the well-being of, of women in those situations and what was really good that came out of that was that the health visitors started to realise with much more clarity how much racism was an issue for these women in their day in day out lives that it wasn't a kind of odd or um, unusual thing but very very common and problematic and that that was helpful I think for the quality of their care. So, so that was my first job for nine years. And then I did a big move and moved to the countryside into um, Northumberland because there was um, a job set up there by the Health Action Zone, which um, happened in the sort of early, late 90s, early 2000s. And it was real, a real sort of new labour initiative to improve the health and well-being of the public. And mine was a lone psychology post. Um, that was part of that and that was funded um, for three years, but actually I was funded part-time for 10 years. 
So that again was a gift. I was so lucky. And I had um, a number of brilliant and inspiring psychology assistants who worked alongside me. And we kind of did work that grew out of the priorities of the health action zone, but also things that resonated with us. So very, very um, based on social inequalities, um, but also trying to kind of fit the bill in terms of a public health remit. So just some of the headlines from that was really um, doing some work with young people, which was very drama-based. Um, and, you know, the young psychology assistant was just marvellous at doing that. And then also using that as a way of generating qualitative data and research about what they wanted from services. Um, we also did um, a, an important study that was around domestic abuse in rural areas. Um, a piece of work that I felt really um, pleased with because we really kind of challenged ourselves in terms of how we conceptualized abuse, how we conceptualized agency, and really looking at what are the enablers for um, women to get safe. And um, so that was a good piece of work. And actually that translated into public health um, recommendations. It became seen as a public health issue which isn't, wasn't so obvious in that, in, at that time. And also we wrote, um, a number of us wrote a self-help booklet that's part of a suite of booklets that is um, written by the Mental Health Trust. So as well as having their depression and anxiety, there's one on um, addressing domestic abuse. And we use some of the stories of the women that we interviewed and who were part of that research. And that actually, I noticed, I've sort of looked it up before today and noticed that that's still on the, um, the Trust website. And I think that's a really important message that it's not all about individual um, problems or classifications. It's also about what happens to people and domestic abuse is a very, very considerable influence on people's well-being. I have a wow. bit of pause there. Already yeah. said. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's great. Thank you, Jan. That's a, it's a really interesting introduction, and I guess I'm really sort of hearing how maybe a kind of awareness of how some of the social and inequality factors weren't kind of maybe being considered early on has then kind of led you into like a number of different projects, kind of working with communities and working with kind of groups that are maybe slightly more marginalised and who perhaps wouldn't have had their voices listened to and I guess um yeah I guess I guess I was really interested in the overlap with kind of public health and and that kind of improving the kind of well-being um of the kind of population I wonder um I guess yeah and you sort of touched on the importance of um kind of addressing social inequalities within that and I, I'm wondering whether you could maybe say something about what community psychology means to you or kind of how you understand that? Um, well, I think community psychology starts by acknowledging that the world isn't a level playing field and that there are vast disadvantages that, you know, are, um, are part of some people's lives much more so than other people's lives. And really community psychology is about addressing um, how does that impact on people, but also how can we make a difference? 
one of the things about community psychology is it's very kind of committed to empowerment and to um, cha you know, social change. I think maybe one of the, I'm diverting a bit, but maybe one of the things that we don't talk about so much is whether we um, rebalance power in a way that actually disempowers some groups. And, you know, we're, we're all very much into um, empowering and for people to make gains, but actually there are political questions about the whole distribution of power and influence and um, people's suffering really and what people have to um, tolerate. But yes, so social inequalities are absolutely central to thinking about um, community psychology. Also about working with groups and communities, not always focusing on individuals, but thinking about what, um, what needs are at a more um at a kind of more population basis and also thinking about what people's strengths are so not getting completely swamped in kind of um a mental health men um psychiatric problem kind of way of thinking but really thinking about the full range of people's abilities and capabilities and talents and joys and strengths that that they bring because in mental health services and you know a lots of us will work in mental health trusts and in mental health um settings we do tend to get drenched in very problem focused thinking so that's the second point or actually that's the third point about community psychology we've got about the taking social inequalities as a central aspect of what we understand and what we do, working with groups and communities. And those groups and communities might be place-based or they might be issue-based. Focusing on people's strengths, um, being aware of how power is understood and how it's acknowledged, really thinking about power, how do we use power? And one of the aspects of community psychology that's so important is being reflective and critical, thinking about our, our place in what we're doing, how we might be influencing it, and how we might be abusing our power and our influence. So that political stance is very important. <coughs> and there's a commitment to social change. So it's not academic. And that was one of the things I've always loved about community psychology. It's not all about something that's in a a big thick book it's also about what we do and um even small things that we we might be able to do that will ease um situations for people are very important i think there's another component of community psychology which is the importance of prevention the importance of changing environments the importance of um making situations better more tolerable so that problems don't happen and finally, I think um, there's something about imaginative um, practice-based evidence. And that was the other thing that was liberating really about community psychology, having done clinical psychology training, is just having a go at different kinds of research, seeing the research as a way of connecting with people and as a way of um, also of everybody sharing and growing their knowledge and their information. I think that's just about included everything that I think is important about community psychology. 
it, it's it's a lot of things, but I think absolutely re so important. And, and I just had a quick question. I know you touched on like the importance of prevention. I just wondered um, how you thought um, it was best to go about that, you know, in terms of um, identifying a problem, realising it needs preventing and then actually um, actioning in a way to prevent it and who is involved in that whether it's co-production um, so I just wondered if you could talk a little about um, you know how you feel that 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 can be done really in in reality. Hmm. Well I think I think it's never done on your own and so there'll be a whole range of influences that that bear on you some of those political some of those um, for better or for worse, really. So if I think about that issue around domestic abuse in Northumberland, that had been identified as a problem. There are probably, a, well, there are a whole range of different social issues and social problems in any area of, of the country. But it did feel like it was the right thing to prioritise at the time, and there were enough people who were concerned about it, which included... Um, a voluntary sector organisation that was very proactive in providing um, support to people who were women who were leaving situations of abuse. So I suppose being influenced by stakeholders, but then using your own judgment about what you think might be a priority. And I mean, the other issue that was a big preoccupation for us was around poverty. And sometimes things get highlighted through um, happenstance, which doesn't sound very scientific, but it will be to do with the combination of people and conversations and priorities that are being considered at the time. So for instance, I was doing individual work in Northumberland and I remember seeing this, a woman who had happened to somehow get hold of a, um, a fresh chicken that was going to be for her Christmas dinner, but it was the only thing that she was going to be able to afford because she was, you know, she'd had real problem debt. And around that time, um, organisations were wanting, they used to get has um, Health Action Zone funding to improve their service or to fund their service. And this particular organisation was wanting more funding or some funding to do more outreach work about debt advice. And actually that kind of came together as, um, as a project which did get some funding for outreach workers who were much more proactive in um, helping people who were likely to have problem debt. Um, so it was, it was a community development model. It kind of came out of some a clinical hunch, but also it comes out of knowing that financial inclusion is a real problem and challenge. And then it became quite a big um initiative which involved children's services because they were so aware of um the the pressures on families and was a quite an alliance of us welfare rights workers debt advice workers um who kind of campaigned within the council but also supported this other service that was going on so you can see that that was still around kind of helping and ameliorating distress, but was also working at a more um, policy level to look at um, the effects of poverty and of um, 
financial exclusion and marginalization. Um, and a little group came out of that, which was because um, I was in the mental health trust as well. And that was a, a group of mental health service users. Many of they've been inpatients quite a few times. Really, real problems around benefits changing and um, debt and being, you know, having debt problems. And that um, formed a little group called Light. Um, I need to try and think, remember what it was. Low Income Good Health Team, that's what they called themselves. Anyway, they produced materials and they went around the wards kind of advising and helping each other around money-related issues. So there were quite a few developments around that. So I think we choose some of the, the important issues because we know that they're important. You know, we only have to read Michael Marmot or to read the newspaper. We know what social inequalities are hurting people and then see, is the climate right? Is it, does this, is it helping with another issue that, um, you know, in your trust or in your council that they need help with as well? So will it, you know, will it um, be constructive for different stakeholders? Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Jan. And I think as well, it's, it's like you touched on a little earlier about that kind of snowball effect of things starting actually quite small and the impact of, of even small um, changes and that can have a you know a big kind of knock-on effect eventually um I mean you've you've touched a lot on this already but um we were wondering about kind of how you try and incorporate these community psychology ideas into your practice so um you know you've mentioned working in NHS trusts and um the kind of set kind of medicalized way that a lot of these trusts function and sometimes working in um these trusts kind of it can feel quite um like kind of limiting I suppose and that you can feel sometimes like you're fighting that that battle yourself and um I suppose thinking a little bit about um the facilitators to incorporating these ideas into your practice but also the barriers which I'm sure that you've come across over the years and and maybe how you've overcome those um it'd be really useful to hear a little about that I think the, the most important thing is to find allies find people where you have a common cause and so when the my sort of 10 years with the health actions and I was really lucky or we were really lucky to get that long really um but I was quite devastated when it finished I have to I have to say it was it was very disappointing but it was just a change of um, policy and a change of direction. But then there were huge opportunities in my trust and there's a lot, my you know, health NHS trust and a lot of people who are very kind of, um, were well inclined to these ideas. Although I have to say also that it is um, a mental health trust with a very kind of medical paradigm and a very kind of, risk conscious and safety conscious approach to um services because that that's that you know the, the there's a real preoccupation with um a kind of sharp end of mental health care so it's not obvious where community psychology fits and that is going to be the scenario for many of us and actually it's the scenario in primary care as well because IAPT is a very particular model 
Um, so how do you start in secondary care um, or inpatient services? I worked in inpatient services for a while as well. And um, I think the first thing is around your personal practice. So when we're clinical psychologists in the health service, we will probably inevitably have a direct working role with and relationship with people who use services. And I think that is often, it, it's a downside and it's certainly not community psychology. And I think it brings problems, which perhaps I might think about when we think about the barriers, because we are very infused with a, a pathology model of distress, which I think we find hard to shake off actually. And for all that we might try and for all that we might um, aspire to be community psychologists, I think we find it, the whole mental health frame difficult to shake off. But um, if we start off with this individual work, then we need to be doing it in the, um, the most kind of community psychology orientated way that we can. So one of the things that's important is around devolving power. And you know, that it's really important to think about how do we do that in our practice? How do we do that? How do we ensure that we do that? How are we actually doing it? In uh, Are we kind of getting supervision and peer support? And are we connecting with people who use services who aren't necessarily our clients? Because that's a really good way of um, finding out what the issues are and reminding you of how um, mental health services come across. Because in our in mental health services, we think we're doing a great job. We're seeing, you know, a few people, not many people. And in the whole scheme of things, people's perception of mental health services is that they shut them out or that they're so inaccessible. You have to have a major life event to get anywhere near a service. So we need to keep um, we need to keep an eye on what the real world is. And doing that, we need to connect with people as clients, but also as peers. And um, we, ha we have a very well organised um, service user and carer um, organisation in our trust, which um, you know I've, I've just have found invaluable. So if I can give an example, um, I was um, the lead psychologist for community services and there'd been some untowards incidents and some poor practice. And the director who was very dynamic and very, very committed to high quality services said, they all need to do formulation training. The staff just need to get on with it and do it. And which was fine. But what we did was, was that we formed an alliance with myself and um, Nicola Armstrong, who I've written a lot with and worked a lot with over the years and other key people and we co-produced um, formulation training, which drew on people's expert experience and um, which really tried to change the tone of training. And that training is still rolling. It was made mandatory, which I think was probably a good thing. If you're gonna have all those other you know, bits and pieces mandatory, then why not have formulation training mandatory? But the ethos of the training was, I mean, it was based on, five P's, you know, um, precipitance and um, past uh, predisposing factors. I don't like predisposing. We used to talk about past factors. Um, 
things that are perpetuating difficulties, what people's positives or strengths are, and then what, what are their ways forward. But what we, we had a very strong um, ethos to the training, which was that distress doesn't just happen. It never comes from nowhere. And um, one of the things that we talked about was that sometimes distress is difficult to get out of. And that it may be that, um, that you feel that instead of seeing the person as stuck, seeing their situation as insurmountable or as very difficult. So the whole idea was also that the relationship was absolutely crucial for actually having the kind of connection with somebody where you could get meaningful information and where it could be a therapeutic and a good experience for them. So we had a number of kind of um, rules for, um, for good formulation, which um, people had to adhere to or were kind of really coached in the training and still are. And I think we, we, we organized it over two, three hour workshops and we trained, I think, over 1500 people and probably more have been trained since. There were teams of experts by experience and generally it was preferred for there always to be an expert by experience to co-produce and co-run the training. Um, there was a focus on strengths. So we had a lot of conversations about what people bring when they um, have difficulties. Um, and also it was supported by management um, arrangements so that it was, it's become embedded on the um, electronic system that you know you you have a meaningful formulation, and I think it has influenced practice and influenced the system. So I think that gives an idea of how a bit of top down and bottom up support really helps you to shift and make a change and improve a system and improve a service, which actually everybody is pleased about. I mean, there's always sort of there's always um, challenges and. There's times when you feel like people are going through the motions and perhaps not being doing this as meaningfully. But one of the things that was important was that this was not about having a conversation about the person. This is having a conversation with the person. This isn't team formulation. And that actually, while it may seem very obvious um, to us, it's, it's a really important part of high quality care. Out of um, that also, um, the, the training keeps growing and the, the training has become more informed and the approach is becoming more informed by the power threat meaning framework, which you've perhaps come across, which is a really helpful way of being trauma informed and being sensitive to how power has worked in a, in a person's life. So um, again, this has been, you know, so, but this has been transformed through the pressure of peer support and um, the kind of persuasiveness and the, um, the charisma, I think, of people who've been involved with that. And then as a result of that, we thought we needed to write something about formulation and this approach to formulation. So a, co a booklet has been co-produced, which is on the our... Um, um, trust website which details um, the approach but also not just how um, how you do formulation but also what you need in order to get a better understanding and the kind of compassionate and um, the approach that you need.
So um, that was that was good. And that also rolled on to some more trauma informed work, which kind of fell out, you know, became it became clear that that was a really important aspect that needed to be added to. So the first thing to do is to find allies. The second thing to do is to listen to people, to find out what people's um, what people's priorities are. If you talk to service users, they desperately want to be understood and they want to be heard. So if you're um, working with them, then that's a win-win really, because um, you know you have so much um, kind of you have so much conviction and you can believe in what you're doing. Um, the other thing I think is perseverance, that things are messy. They, you know, you get disappointments and setbacks, things don't work out. And then you have to G each other up and, you know, really energize yourself and get started and keep going. I think another thing to do is um, to keep arguing and exposing what is happening, to keep sort of um, telling the truth, telling, um, to keep airing your impressions, whether it's to your manager or to colleagues, but to always ensure that you keep this responsibility of noting and observing. That's what psychologists are good at. It's what we're trained at. And that's something I think that we need to do in which actually it gives us evidence and it keeps us going. We need to use evidence. So, um, we can use evidence, you know, there's broad CBT evidence for formulation. There's evidence for trauma-informed practice. And I think that's, you know, how we need to um, practice our arguments so that we can do that. I've done, I may get the chance to tell you, but a lot of work around staff support and staff well-being. There's really clear, nice guidance talking about what we need for staff support at work. When, when the the, when the guidance um, fits in such a clear way, then it's really important that we use it. But I think the final thing is to be generating evidence and we need to be um, producing uh, practice-based evidence because we can, you know, we're never gonna get um, kind of gold standard um, experimental data that backs up what we're doing. But what we can be doing is reflecting and writing and commenting on what we're working at so that those are facilitators long answer um I, in terms of barriers the um i think the prevailing model of understanding of mental health it is is very laden with um concerns about people people having problems it's, it is hugely problematized and, and it, it is difficult because when we are struggling and suffering we feel unwell and you know there's no doubt about how difficult that can be for us but I think it's really important that we um, keep remembering that it's you know if you put us in certain circumstances in certain situations then we will struggle so that conceptual and ideological barrier is, is quite considerable, I think. And as I, as I was saying earlier, we all live in a culture and, um, and in services that tend to 
make problems, you know, and, and see people in terms of problems and labels and diagnoses rather than in terms of a whole range of um, assets and aspects to them. So that, that, that is a problem. I, I think um, I, I, another issue is around the not being enough psychologists and um, I, I normally, you know, try to be very modest and not too kind of aggrandizing about psychology. But I think as I've got towards the end of my career, I just feel a bit frustrated and sad that we there aren't more, not necessarily clinical psychologists, but just more um, people who can offer help and support and solidarity and ways of working innovatively innovatively with people. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's a barrier. Actually, the resource is a barrier. And often we get really caught up at the sharp end of um, systems and services. And we're not kind of, we're not free to really um, lean in to our communities and work in a more proactive way. Um, which brings us often to doing it in our own time. So I, I do think that is a barrier. I think we've got conceptual barriers, ideological barriers, and also practical and resource barriers. I, I mean, I think if you're thinking about it sort of personally, um, I think about building on your affiliations and your passions. So you know, like when I was saying about, you know, the whole public, there's a huge public health remit, but then, and you know, like you'll have all sorts of choices and decisions and ideas for your own research and your own projects that you want to do. But I think it's really important to harness your um, enthusiasms and to, to be dictated by what the priorities are in terms of social inequalities. And you know, so we've mentioned debt and poverty. We've mentioned domestic abuse. We could also mention um, racism and the, the impact of racism. There are a huge number of very pertinent issues. Um, but to build on our passions um, and those concerns that really needless and preoccupy us, I think to seek and give support to others really helps us all. And um, I was thinking, you know, your group, this group, this um, is fantastic and it's marvellous that you've connected, you know, in spite of um, the awfulness of COVID and the, the tragedy that that's brought. But um, I was remembering that, I, I can't remember exactly when it was, but when I was first started, finished training, um, I, we, we were really... Um, I think we were rather above ourselves. Anyway, we invited, I don't know whether you've heard about George Albee, who was a real kind of guru of American community psychology. Um, he was quite elderly, but he was in the UK anyway. Anyway, he came to Nottinghamshire and he spent the day with us and we had a community psychology conference. And it was our first conference in Newark, Nottinghamshire, a really kind of nondescript place. But that act of supporting each other, learning, building knowledge, it, it's just, it stayed throughout my career and friendships are so, you know, enriched by it. Um, so we had, we used to have annual or biannual conferences, which were quirky and funny. I remember 
paddling in the Great Yarmouth Sea, and you know, we just had great times. And um, but and then in 2010, it all got a bit more formal, and we have the British Psychological Community Psychology section. But also in our localities, often there are community psychology um, organisations, and certainly in the northeast. Um, since 2002 we meet every few months and sometimes it's just about sharing um, stories and experiences I mean for instance one initiative that was really important was around um, the people needing letters for their benefits and for benefit appeals so we re we got um, somebody in from the University of Newcastle who um, specializes in um, welfare rights and um, she talked to us about the, the recent changes in legislation and we all kind of pitched in and exchanged resources and we've all got our own set of um, kind of tips and tools to help people to support them with their benefit claims. I think that kind of intelligence sharing is really important as well as being good for morale. The other thing to say is that um, our mix of people is psychologists and all sorts of non-psychologists and it that seems to work really well and also I think we're all quite um politically you know full of uh, very sort of um, politically committed but it's not party political and there's a huge tolerance for difference in terms of um political affiliation but I do think that as a tip then that kind of seeking and offering support is really, really important. The other thing I think around um, actually um, putting community psychology ideas into practice is to know your patch and to, um, to at the very least, to know what's out there for, um, for the people that you're working with, whether it be colleagues, staff or um, service users. And that, that's something that we can all do and is basic and, um, you know, not scary. Um, so that, but that's connecting people with services and resources is really the very least that we can do. I think earlier on you mentioned um, kind of the idea of doing a good piece of work in, in kind of working with communities. And I guess I, we were wondering about how that might be measured or kind of sort of known about or kind of understood in terms of community psychology practice mm -hmm. um so that was the first part and then the second part was just about any kind of critiques or or sort of critical aspects to to working in this way mm -hmm. i think um i think the, the main thing is to write write stuff up because that actually makes you very accountable and transparent so certainly all of the work that we did in Northumberland and work that we've done since we've tried to write up and to co-produce um, because that does expose you then in a way you have to be answerable for what you've done um, and it does make you more transparent um, and it's also quite challenging because you really have to examine your rationale and be you know be clear that your 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 arguments are sound or at least that they can be um, debated. Um, and then I think also, you know, that 
is to be imaginative about methodologies. And, you know, methodologies, I think, are probably more imaginative generally now than they were when I trained, and which is, you know, offers great hope. I think the other thing that's um, come to me, perhaps uh, I'm a bit less imaginative than some people, but just about being creative and um, and using creative ways of connecting and, and um, communicating with people, um, I think is lovely and all, and is tangible. And again, if there's ways of writing up that up, I think that's useful. I guess we were um, we're kind of always thinking that we need to kind of hold a kind of critical position um, to the work that we're doing and the ways that we're doing. And I guess in some ways you've spoken about the ways in which community psychology holds a more critical position to mainstream kind of problematized mental health kind of paradigm. But I guess we're also yeah. interested to just kind of think about whether there are any critiques or kind of critical aspects to think about in terms of community psychology itself. I think there are, and um, and it's very uncomfortable because then there's the whole kind of identity as to, you know, are you being a professional or are you being political? And those questions are much harder and, and less boundaried, I think, um, once you're embarking into a more community psychology role. So I do think that's important. And I do think we always, always have to be asking ourselves in whose interest is this intervention? Who's benefiting? Is anybody being harmed? And those are very difficult questions to ask, answer, honestly. And there is potential to harm. There's potential for individual work to harm and also potential for community psychology to be potentially harmful. Um, so I, I think that we need to be guarding against that all the time. And that the most effective way of doing that is through conversation and discussion. But, you know, there are issues around governance and because you do have professional standards, but, you know, you need to be renegotiating, rethinking about what they look like in a less formal um, setting. So in some ways, it's less certain and can be um, can be more challenging um, for people. But it also kind of it does work. And as long as, you know, you're very clear about um, your aims and your kind of um, your convictions in terms of behaving in appropriate ways, then I think it can work. Um, but yes, I can see what you're getting at. And that is, it is really important. Also, you know, there are people like Craig Nunes who argues that this is psychologizing something that is common sense. And, and you know, I can see some of that as well. Um, and, you know, that is that how, um, how moral an enterprise is that? And, and thinking about kind of um, some of these barriers and and also critiques of community psychology um I, and and our last question actually Jan and thank you so much for your time today um I I suppose it's it's a question of two parts I think you spoke a little bit earlier about um this bridge between the being um top down and bottom up support and um I suppose you know the first question is um you know, for situations where um, it feels like there maybe isn't so much top-down support, so maybe the managerial and leadership culture doesn't really value 
co-production um, and maybe the barriers of that and maybe how you feel that those could be overcome and what you hope for, for more specific situations like that, but also wider for community psychology about what you hope for the future, whether you hope that instances of that will become less frequent because um, there will be um, a, a more of an understanding about the fact that this is such a beneficial and positive way to work and these values are so important or um, do you think that actually the future of community psychology will go a different way and it's not so much reliant upon the top-down support and so I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that really those kind of two sections of that question. I, I do feel quite hopeful about community psychology. I mean, the, 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 we could worry that any kind of formalize the more that you formalise something, in a sense, the more that you make it difficult to be spontaneous and responsive and proactive and in the way that, you know, community psychology is. But I think what we need is to actually give people some freedom and some autonomy to do this work and then it will flower and it will blossom and it will be creative um, but we need to trust people to do that and I one of the um, things that we've learned through COVID is that trust in public service is really important and actually if you do trust public services to do some of these things they can do them well but I think there's a lot to learn between different sectors and a huge amount to learn from peer-led organizations. So we had um, we had a, a great event. Well, it was a, an online event that should have been, obviously should have been face-to-face -face in December. And, you know, we just learned so much from these different organizations offering solidarity and hope to people who never get near any statutory services. And I think to keep that, that, that is a really good way forward, which is to keep open and keep learning from different people and different stakeholders um, so that we are kind of learning and growing all the time because actually our practice isn't um, set or shouldn't be set or um, seen as kind of idealised because there's still so much that we could be flexible and responsive about. So in terms of the future, I think place-based services offer a huge amount of scope, and that is um, what's indicated in the long-term plan. Um, and, you know, maybe it looks promising in terms of investment. There has to be more investment in um, well-being services and well-being, not services, but well-being initiatives. Um, and for psychologists to be, um, seem to be much more kind of, um, bold and interested in different kinds of settings to work in, not necessarily formal NHS ones. It might be crisis housing or it might be setting up um, community interest companies. And um, there's a bit of work going on in the Northeast. There's Hannah Berman in the Northeast who's um, working in Jarrow um, in a, a small community. And she's just opted out of the health service and opted in to this um, community interest company that she's set up. There's also people working in crisis in um, housing and homelessness services, which I think just frees people up to be able to work in more innovative and um, exploratory ways. So I think also, um, 
I think that methods can become more um, radical. I think we can be more exploratory and more experimental. And I'm sort of questioning myself a bit because I've always felt like we can tinker with therapy or we can tinker with the conventional methods we use. Actually, I think it is time to be expanding and rethinking some of um, the assumptions, very westernized and very white assumptions that we make about people's um, functioning and well-being. And so there's scope, there's huge scope for us to think innovatively and creatively about that. Um, and then we just need to keep arguing for a much bolder investment in psychology, but in imaginative and different ways. It's not all about being a a, you know, a doctor in clinical psychology, but think about other roles and other functions that we can um, enable to happen that could really make a difference. Thank you, Jan. That is a brilliant. Um, I feel like we've been on a, a journey with you through your career and the different roles that you've worked in and kind of it's really inspiring to hear about the kind of organic and maybe quite responsive and creative kind of way that, that we can kind of work um, as psychologists and work with our community partners. Um, yeah, I guess there was just one more tiny question from the chat, which was about um, the Building Compassionate Communities Together Conference. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So apparently, yeah, would you be able to say a bit about um, the conference that you've been organizing, uh, been organizing recently, as it sounds like it might link to the last point? Yes. Well, I think we've, um, well, one of the things that was fantastic in um, in the summer, well, September 2019, when we all still gathered together and um, remember when we could go out and have a good time. And a couple of quite recently um, graduated clinical psychology trainees um, organized a most wonderful community psychology festival and we, it was just, they made it up as they went along, but it was creative, we crowdfunded, we had bunting, we had a human library, we had um, children playing and, um, oh, there was knitting and it was just a wonderful day of celebration, really, of community resources. And we'd organised it in a bit, in the spirit of um, actually kind of bringing together how we have overcome adversity and austerity. So instead of, um, we couldn't really celebrate overcoming austerity, but what it was doing was um, recognizing how much has happened and how much is still going on in communities, in primary care, you know, with various um, voluntary organizations. And it was just a lovely, fun, um, day and I think that taught me something about how you can do this and I think that's what community psychology offers it, it offers fun as well as theory and um, politics and um, change so um, the building compassionate communities together event was actually instigated by experts by experience who work um who have spent a lot of time with the British Psychological Society and the, the Division of Clinical Psychology, but they wanted us to do something in the Northeast. So myself and various colleagues got together in the, nor in the Northeast to organize an event. And 
um, sadly, obviously, because we couldn't all get together physically, most of the contributors were from the Northeast, but, um, but you know, it was all online. But we just learned so much from how people are helping each other. Um, you know, the way that people talk to themselves, they referred to themselves as we, not I. And, you know, just imagine if mental health services referred to everybody as us rather than, you know, they using services. Um, this idea of being proactive, looking for opportunities to connect with people, not kind of um, fobbing them off if they don't fit what they think, you know, should a service user should fit look like for to use our service or um, learning from different stories, being supportive, but also being disruptive. Um, they, it was a, such a hopeful event. People talked about how you can get over anything if you've got collaboration and if you've got people alongside you. People need compassion and forgiveness and a constant relationship of hope and investment. Um, and that kind of energy and commitment is so, so important. So I think um, that event, we're, we're just now thinking about how we follow up that event actually and how we keep building on the lovely um, messages and connections that were, were made because um, those voices were so important and so energizing and so creative. So we had dancing, poetry, singing, and you know, it was a real um, a joy. Wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, we need to, we need some of that. Can we come to the next one? Um, great. Okay. Well, thank you, Jan. I, I think you know that just really speaks to the kind of power, really, that can power and energy that comes from like communities and people coming together to to kind of address something that matters to them all and. Yeah, I think that's a really important and hopeful message for, for this time of COVID and all the challenges that that has brought. So, yeah, thank, thank you. I think we probably should finish, finish the episode there. But, yeah, thank you for being our guest for our last episode. And thank you, Molly, for being the, my co-host. What you're doing, because it's really, really encouraging and must keep going. It's fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Jan. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are Discovering Community Psychology. We're also over on Twitter at Discovering Community Psychology. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas or thoughts on today's or any of our other episodes. So please do get in touch.